We're in the middle of a series thinking about the Holy Spirit, just to remind you of where we've been and where we're headed in this series. Week one, we asked the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And the biblical answer is that the Holy Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father. He's the third person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. And so it's right for us to sing, as we just sang this morning, glory to the Father, glory to the Son, and glory to the Holy Spirit. So that's who He is. Week two, we look backwards in history and we said, what has He done in the past specifically in inspiring the Scriptures? And we looked at the biblical truth that uh, the Holy Spirit breathed out the Scriptures, spirited out the Scriptures, the Bible. We talked about the Holy Spirit carrying men along as they wrote the words that we have in our Bible so that the end result is that we have Paul's words and Moses' words and David's words and John's words, but ultimately we have God's Word in the Scriptures. Week three and four were weeks that thematically went together and we talked about the Holy Spirit convicting the world, you're going to need to remember that this morning, and regenerating sinners. And you're going to need to remember that this morning. We will see, as we think about the Holy Spirit filling believers, that there is unity to the work of the Holy Spirit. And while we're separating these things out and talk, talking about them individually each week, there's unity to the work that the Spirit does in the world and in our lives. So last week we talked about the Holy Spirit sealing believers. And last week, through the end of the series, we're focusing on what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a Christian, in the life of a believer. So last week he seals us, he claims us as his own, he keeps us uh, as God's own. And this morning we're going to talk about the idea that the Holy Spirit fills believers. Now, as your pastor, I want to lead with one brief editorial comment. I've been a pastor now for about almost 20 years. And as I think back over conversations that I've had with people in a pastoral type relationship where we were talking about the Holy Spirit, it seems to me that Christians take a lot of ideas that we don't quite know what to do with and we tend to put them in a bucket with a label, the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about here to be clear. Emotional experiences. Maybe you attend a worship service, maybe you attend a concert, and the music is wonderful, and the lyrics are stirring, and the gospel truth is powerful, and you have some sort of emotional response to the music. And I think what Christians tend to do without questioning or even thinking is we just assume, oh, that must be the Holy Spirit making me feel a certain way feel a certain emotion. Another example would be strange coincidences in life. Uh, you've, something happens, something lines up, it's just almost too good to be true. You say, what are the odds? I don't know. And Christians tend to say, I think the Holy Spirit is trying to tell me something. What are the odds that these things would line up in this way? Certainly, clearly, this seems to be the Holy Spirit. Uh, unexplained suspicions or hunches. Sometimes you just say, you know, I, I feel good about this thing. I, I feel positive about it. Or maybe you say, I don't know about this thing. I feel a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of unease. 
And again, I think what Christians, many Christians, tend to do is to take all of those suspicions and hunches and premonitions and say, without questioning, that is the Holy Spirit trying to tell me a certain thing. Now, some of you are thinking, this guy knows nothing about the Holy Spirit. He's questioning all of these ways that the Holy Spirit has been at work in my life. And I would just say to you, I believe fully that the Holy Spirit can impact our emotions. And I think music is a gift from God that often stirs our emotions. And I don't find it too hard to believe that the Holy Spirit could use music when combined with biblical truth to stir your emotions. I'm not saying that's impossible. All I'm saying is every time you have an emotional reaction to music, it may or may not be the Holy Spirit. And I think the same thing is true with strange coincidences. Sometimes I think they're just strange coincidences. Now, I certainly believe that there's times in life where you can look at your circumstance, look at your situation as desperately as you want God to speak down directly and say this or that and make it plain to you. Sometimes you just have to look at where you're at and you say, it seems like God is leading in this direction and things have lined up for this to happen. A hundred percent, I believe that's possible. But sometimes strange coincidences, I think, are just strange coincidences. And sometimes our hunches, our anxieties, or our sense of peace about a thing may or may not be the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Okay, this is what I'm telling you when you think about these things that I've laid out. In this series, our aim is to listen to what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. I can't show you very many verses in the Bible that indicate that the Holy Spirit works in those three ways. There's just not a lot there. I can show you verses that talk about the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture. And I can show you verses that talk about the Holy Spirit being third person of the Trinity. And I can show you verses that talk about the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and regeneration and sealing God's people and filling God's people. But when it comes to hunches or emotions or coincidences, there's not a lot to go on biblically. Our aim in this series is not to just make up things we want to be true about the Holy Spirit, but it's to listen to what the Bible actually says about the Holy Spirit. And beyond that, to listen to everything that the Bible would say about the Holy Spirit. Not just to pull out one little idea, one verse, and ignore all of the other verses and the other emphases in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit so that we can prove our point that we want to make about the Holy Spirit of God. But it's to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes and to come away believing what the Bible says with respect to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So this morning we're going to talk about something that just across the spectrum in Christianity is probably rather controversial. We're going to talk about what does it mean that we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I promise you, if you go home, you don't have to go home, you have Google on your phone. If you Google, what does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? You will have no end of answers of people throwing ideas out. Oh, filling of the Holy Spirit, it means this, it means this, it means this. And most of it, I'm afraid, has very little to do with what the Bible says about this topic. When we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, most basically, what we're talking about is, number one, God's presence with His people. God is with us. We have His presence. Not His presence that ends with NTS, like His goodies. 
His presence. We have God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Connected with that are the ideas of control, influence, and direction. And if you want to see where I'm pulling this from, you can look at Ephesians chapter 5. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see the contrast and the parallel that he's drawing? Don't be a drunkard. Because when you're a drunkard, you are controlled by the wine, you're influenced by the wine, you're directed by the wine. You are not in control. And he doesn't tell them even to be in control of themselves, but he says instead of being controlled by wine or whatever substance, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And when we say the Holy Spirit's going to lead you, we're not saying, I think the Holy Spirit's leading me to have tacos for lunch. We're not talking about trivial things like that. Okay? We're thinking about biblical categories. Biblical truth that we can pull out of God's Word to say, how might the Holy Spirit guide us? How might He direct us? How might He influence our lives? So our aim is to think biblically, and our passage this morning is John chapter 14. We have looked at this section of the Gospel of John several times, and we will look at it again next Sunday. John chapter 13 all the way to 17 is one story. Happened at one time, one moment. Okay? This was the night before Jesus was crucified. This is the night he was betrayed by Judas. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. In John chapter 13, he washes their feet. He gives them example, an example of service. In John chapter 17, he prays for them. And if you're a believer, he prayed for you. And in the middle, 14, 15, 16, he gave a sermon. It's called the Upper Room Discourse, or sometimes it's called the Farewell Discourse because it was in an upper room and Jesus was saying farewell to his disciples. It is no coincidence that on this night, in this moment, Jesus had more to say about the Holy Spirit than any other time in his three-year ministry. He knew that he was getting ready to leave his disciples and he is preparing them for another helper who is going to come, another helper. And in this farewell discourse, there's a number of different places where Jesus talks about a helper, a helper, a helper. The word is paraclete, one who comes alongside of you to walk with you and to help you through a time of difficulty or trouble. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's that helper, that paraclete, that advocate, that counselor, that friend. I read a commentary this week, and I think it's very helpful in thinking about our passage. We're about to read these verses. This is from Edward Clink, New Testament scholar. It says, in this pericope, that's a fancy Bible doctrine, theology word for story. In this pericope, we're introduced to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is defined not only as the Spirit of truth, but as, quote, another paraclete. The theology of the Spirit provided by this pericope and the rest of the farewell discourse is sorely needed in our churches today. The Spirit is genuinely, generally the most abused person of God, for He's either underemphasized for fear of abuse or overemphasized for fear of neglect. 
Yet the entire Christian life can rightly be described as life in the Spirit. To live in the Spirit is neither to neglect the Father nor to eclipse Christ, but to serve, respond to, and participate in them both. To live in the Spirit is to be Trinitarian. I would encourage you as we read these verses from John chapter 14 to look for a Trinitarian depiction of God. Understand that God the Son is speaking, He makes reference to the Father, and He clearly makes reference to the Spirit. So if you have your copy of the Scriptures, you can look at John chapter 14. I'm going to read verse 15, 16, and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Father, this morning we're thankful that you have sent your only Son, the eternally begotten Son, Jesus, to be our helper, to live for us and to die for us. We thank you that you answered the prayer of the Son and you sent another helper, the Spirit of truth. We thank you for these promises that your Spirit dwells with us and in us. Father, we acknowledge this morning that we need your help. And so we're thankful that you are quick to help your people. Guide our thoughts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of times on Sundays we think first about what the text says and then we move on and we try to apply it to our lives. We're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. We're just going to ask one real question. The question is, what does Jesus say in these verses about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? And we'll try to make some application as we go and we think about these Uh, several truths. So what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 15, 16, and 17? Number one, the world does not care about the Holy Spirit. When you read the Gospel of John and you read about the world, we're not talking about the globe, we're not talking about planet earth, we're not talking about the ground you walk on. When you read that term world in the Gospel of John, John is describing fallen sinful humanity in defiance and opposition to the one true God. He's talking about the collective mass of human beings who are fallen, dead in trespasses and sins, and want nothing to do with the one true God. And notice what Jesus says in verse 17. He's talking about the spirit of truth, and he says, whom the world cannot receive. The Greek wording there is udunatai, not able, not able. So it certainly would be true to say the world is not interested in the Holy Spirit, which we've said. Do you understand there's an even more fundamental truth where Jesus is not just saying the world won't receive him. He's saying the world can't receive him. The world, left to itself, does not have the ability, udunatai, they're not able to receive the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's not just Jesus who said this. Paul, 
agrees with Jesus, if you look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he talks about the natural person that would be a worldly person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They don't accept them. They're folly to him. And he is, same words, udunatai, he is not able. It's the world, it's the natural person, left to themselves, does not accept the things of the Spirit, is not interested in the Spirit, but even more fundamental than that, they're not able to receive the things of the Spirit. They do not have the ability. So let's just try to think about this and be clear about the distinction between a person's willingness to do a thing and a person's ability to do a thing so that we understand the point that Jesus is making. How many of you know there's a football game tonight? Okay, it's called the Super Bowl. I hate to tell you, the Cowboys are not in it. Two teams, Kansas City Chiefs, we have a few Chiefs fans around, lots of red and KC. The 49ers are playing. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Chiefs. I don't dislike the Chiefs. Just, they're the Chiefs, that's fine. I do not like the 49ers. I'm a Cowboys fan. I do not like the 49ers. It's the most amens I've heard in 10 years of preaching here. I do not like the 49ers, okay? I have the ability to put on a 49ers shirt. My arms would go through the holes. hole would go over my big, bald head. Would not rot my skin off to put it on. Just be a red shirt with some gold. I have the ability to wear it. I am not willing to wear it. I'm not willing. There's a difference. I have the ability, but I'm not willing. Let me tell you what I do not have the ability to do. I do not have the ability to play professional football. Too slow. Can't throw. Can't cover anybody. I've gained some weight on this side of 40, but I'm not big enough to be a lineman in the NFL. There's not one thing I can do on the football field. I do not have the physical ability to do any of the things that you need to do. Can't kick a field goal, can't punt, can't do anything. I don't have the ability to do those things, right? I might have the willingness to do them if you would pay me millions of dollars. Yes, I'd be willing to do that. Sign me up for one of those big contracts. But I don't have the ability. So you understand there's a distinction there. Okay, let me give you one more example just so we're clear. Many of you know that I am, even more than a Cowboys fan, a Kansas Jayhawks fan. And it's been a weird week for the Jayhawks because we won a great game last night. Our best player was out and we still won. We won a great game a week ago, just absolutely destroyed Houston. And right in the middle of it, we lost to one of our rivals, Kansas State. I don't like Kansas State. Now, I have the ability to wear a purple shirt with the name of a college on it. In fact, yesterday, I did that. I have a daughter going to Tarleton in the fall. Their colors are purple. And I wore a shirt that had purple on it. It's a college shirt with purple on it. I'm able to do that. I'm willing to do that. I'm not willing to wear a silly cat head right here purple cat head. Not interested. Don't want to do it. I'm unwilling to put that shirt on. I don't want anything to do with it. You have the ability to do a thing. You have the willingness 
to do a thing. This is what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit. This is really important for understanding how things work in our experience of salvation. Jesus says the world, it's not only that they won't receive the Holy Spirit, which that's true. What he says is they can't. They don't have the ability. Paul said the same thing to the church in Corinth. That shouldn't surprise you, especially if you've read the Gospel of John Back in John chapter 1, verse 9, 10, and 11, you read about the first helper, Jesus, who came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. They weren't interested in him. You read that, and you say, these people aren't interested in Jesus. They're not interested in the Holy Spirit. They don't have the ability to receive the Holy Spirit How in the world, preacher, is anybody ever going to become a Christian? That's a good question. You remember what we talked about just a couple of weeks ago? The Holy Spirit convicts who? The world. Of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You and I can't convict anyone of any of those things. We can speak about those truths, but it's ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit of God to convict the world. And we said just a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit of God regenerates sinners. He gives life out of death. Look, it's not that you believe and then you're born again. The biblical metaphor is actually that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and the almighty Holy Spirit of God blows like the wind and causes you to be born again, born from above. That's the metaphor in John 3. The metaphor, if you'd like to talk about it in Ephesians chapter 2, is that you're dead and God makes you alive. The Holy Spirit convicts the world and He regenerates sinners. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the world doesn't care about the Holy Spirit. The world can't receive the Holy Spirit. You understand, if you're here today and you say, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And I do not think that the things of the Spirit of God are folly. I actually think that they're the wisdom of God. If that's you, and I pray that it is you, It's not that you're smarter or more spiritual than your unbelieving neighbors. It's that the almighty spirit of God convicted you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive so that you had the ability to receive him. Because the world left to itself does not have that ability. Okay. Number one, the world's not interested. Number two, the Holy Spirit is actually God dwelling with And in his people. With and in his people. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We're all interested in what the Holy Spirit can do for us. But one of the primary things you need to understand about being filled with the Holy Spirit is that before you get anything from the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit with you. When Jesus called disciples, he called them not to go preach first, not to cast out demons first, not to perform miracles first. Look it up in the Gospel of Mark. He called them first to be with 
him to be with him. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to send another helper and he will be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him. It neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and he will be in you. It's God with his people. It's God in his people. Look, you can trace this all the way through the Bible. We don't have time to look up all of these references, but you can trace this literally from the opening chapters of the Bible to the closing chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God created people. He created the world. He put them in a garden, and he was with them, and he walked with them, and they had fellowship with God. And then they sinned, and they had to leave. They were sent into exile. They had to leave God's presence. They couldn't be with him like they were made to be with him. And then God started making promises to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you can go back in Genesis and you can look at what the Lord God said to those men over and over and over again. He said to them, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I want you to leave your home and go somewhere else. I'll be with you. I want you to leave somewhere else and I want you to go back to your home. I'm going to be with you. You're going to leave this place and you're going to end up in a foreign land. And when you go there, I'm going to be with you. He told these people over and over and over, I will be with you, I'll be with you. When he saved Abraham's family out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. What did he ask them to build? A giant tent. Why? What do they need a tent for? Well, God was going to be with them. He intended to be with them, right in the midst of them. Build this tabernacle. Later, when they landed in the promised land and they were secure and the monarchy was established, David made the preparations and Solomon built the temple. And just like it happened with the tabernacle, the glory of God filled that place in an absolutely overwhelming way. God came to be with his people. God always is working to be with his people. His people sinned. Israel sinned, Judah sinned, they were sent into exile. They were cast out of the promised land. God described it as throwing them out of the promised land. They couldn't be in his presence. But after 70 years, God brought them back. What was the first thing they built? It was a temple. They built the temple. You can read about it in Haggai. They built this temple, they gathered around it, and they wept. Physically, it wasn't as impressive as the one that had been torn down by the Babylonians. But I don't think they were just weeping because the construction wasn't up to code. I think they were weeping because there's no record that the glory of God filled that place like it had in the tabernacle or the temple before. And they were longing for the presence of God. And they had a building, but it wasn't the same. So they waited. And about 400 years later, a baby was born. And an angel spoke about the birth of this baby and said, This baby is Emmanuel. He is God come to be with you. Not in overwhelming glory at the tabernacle of the temple and smoke and fire and all the rest, but in a manger. This is Emmanuel. God come to be with you. And that baby grew up to be a man, and at the end of his life, he looked at his friends and he said, I'm going away, 
while I'm gone, I want you to make disciples, and I'll be with you forever to the end of the age. Have you ever thought about that? I'm leaving, I'll be with you. I'm leaving, I'll be with you. I'm going away, I'll be with you forever. How? It's not just a how, it's a who. It's this another helper. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the very presence of God with His people. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, where we will be with God. He will be our God. We will be His people. But until that day, we're not left as orphans. We have God's very presence with us, and not only with us, but in us. That's what Jesus said. He dwells with you, present tense, now, and He will be future in you. You understand the Holy Spirit didn't just show up on the day of Pentecost as if He hadn't been doing anything before. He was with God's people. He'd always been with God's people. But now He's going to be in them in a new way. Look, there's verses in the New Testament. Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, John 1. They're promises from John the Baptist that the Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit. You can get online and you can find the wildest ideas in the world about what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or you can listen to Acts chapter 1 explain that all of those promises came to fulfillment on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to fill God's people. This idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's not about some wild, ecstatic, miraculous, out-of-control experience in your life. It's not about something completely miraculous or supernatural in an outward way. But it's about the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way filling you. Not only being with you, but being in you. Now look, I talk about that, and I've talked to some of you. When I talk about the Holy Spirit filling a believer, if you're a believer, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. I know what some of you think. Some of you think, that's great, but I don't feel like I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't feel like I am. In fact, some of you say, I feel like I, God's just not even with me at all, and I don't know what's going on, and I feel left alone. I don't feel any of that. And you say to yourself, you're thinking people. It's good to be a thinking person. You're thinking to yourself, the preacher says the Holy Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. Surely, if the third person of the Trinity came to be in me in some sense, I would know that, right? Well, I've read the Bible and I don't find any verse in the Bible that tells you what it feels like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't have a single verse in Scripture that says, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is how you will feel. So there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate you should feel a certain way. I would add to that, secondly, that when it comes to matters of faith, our feelings are not the determining, deciding factor in what's true and what's real. We don't gather together in this room and I say, okay, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit you know, it could be this or it could be that. How many of you want to vote for that? How many of you want to vote for this? Whoever feels most strongly about it, I guess we'll go in that direction. That's not how we believe things as Christians. We listen to the Scriptures, not our feelings. 
If you want to understand the biblical test for whether or not you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not an emotion, it's not an experience, it's not a feeling. Are you ready for the test? It's really simple. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you obey Jesus? And do you talk about Jesus? That's the test. Not how do you feel about it. Spoiler alert, that's the rest of the sermon. So we'll move from number two to number three. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? What does Jesus say? Well, he says the Holy Spirit empowers God's people not to feel a certain way, but to believe in Jesus and to love Jesus. I'm pulling this idea from uh, what came immediately before our passage in John chapter 14. We just jumped in right in the middle, verse 15. Look at the beginning of this farewell discourse. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. That's a feeling. Jesus knows they have feelings. Look what his remedy is. Let, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. The solution to a troubled feeling is not some kind of emotional experience, but it's faith in who God is and who Jesus is. He wants them to believe. Jump down to verse 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He wants these men to believe in him, and he knows they're struggling. He knows they're struggling. You read the farewell discourse. He knows they're having a hard time piecing all this together. And he knows it's about to get harder before it gets easier because he's going to leave. And so he picks up in our passage, having implored them to believe. Verse 1 and verse 11. And he says, hey, guys, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send somebody to help you. To help you believe. To help you love. I think this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 15. He says, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's not my intention to sort out the grammar of this verse and to parse it all out and to exegete it. It's just to show you the connection of these ideas. God's going to fill his people. The Holy Spirit's going to be involved. And the end result is they're going to believe. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the people of God that we would believe in Jesus, that we would love Jesus. If you've read the New Testament, you've maybe read about a man named John the Baptist. We mentioned him just a moment ago. What was John's job? What was he sent to do? Prepare the way. Be a voice crying in the wilderness. Call people to repent and get ready for who? Jesus to point people to Jesus, to call people to believe in Jesus. That was his job. Do you think it's any coincidence that if his job was to point people to believe the truth about Jesus, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb? And that his mother, while she was pregnant, was filled with the Holy Spirit? And that his father, when he was born, was filled with the Holy Spirit? You see the connection? This family in a unique way filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what is their function in God's economy of salvation? Is to point people to to Jesus. To call people to believe the truth about Jesus. To believe in Jesus and to love Jesus. Truth number four. Jesus says the Holy Spirit empowers God's people to obey Jesus. 
to obey. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Look, I talk to people enough to know how we tend to think about salvation in default terms, okay? What we tend to think when it comes to salvation is that if we can have enough faith and we can add enough obedience, then the end result will be that God loves us. I need to believe, probably need to do some good things, and if I do those things in the right combination, then God will love me. Maybe he'll save me. The biblical order of things is exactly the opposite of that. It's the exact opposite. It's that God loved us when we were far from him and his enemies. He loved us. And the result of God's love for undeserving sinners like us is that we, who are of the world and can't receive the Holy Spirit and want nothing to do with Jesus the Messiah, we're changed. We're convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. We're born again, and the result is we have faith in Jesus, and obedience marks our lives. you got to get this straight. you got to get obedience on the right side of the equation. You cannot go through your life thinking, i got to do enough stuff for God to love me, but you got to understand that God loved me freely, saved me, changed me. The result of that is I follow Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, and if you love Jesus, you obey Jesus. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not always easy. Lucky for you, lucky for me, Jesus says, I'll send someone to help you. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The very next words out of his mouth, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. I know you can't do it on your own, so I'm going to send somebody to help you do it. Look, God's always helped his people do what he's called them to do. In the Old Testament, he called two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, to build a tabernacle. Go back and read it. The Holy Spirit helped them do it. Moses, when he couldn't lead the multitude of the people, he called 70 elders. He set them aside to help lead the people. Guess what they got? It's not a what, it's a who, the Holy Spirit. God had a job for them, something for them to do. He helped them to do it. We see the same thing in the Old Testament when you read about Joshua taking over for Moses. He received the Spirit. God helps his people to be obedient. That's the ultimate beauty of the new covenant that we live under. We'll just jump ahead from some of these Old Testament examples I've given you. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the prophet living in exile, talking about what God would do when he sent the Messiah and when he ushered in a new covenant. He said, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. We talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. God promises to do that. And then he says, I will put my spirit, big S, my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's God working in his people to change them from the inside out, to help them believe the truth about the Messiah, and to help them walk in obedience. Walking. You see the connection between the work of the Spirit the Spirit being with us, in us, and walking. You see the same thing in Paul's letters. Paul says to various churches, walk in the Spirit. 
walk in the Spirit. Be with the Spirit. Let the Spirit guide you. Let the Spirit control you. Let the Spirit direct you. Let the Spirit influence you. We're talking about the same thing in all these passages. One warning before I give you the last point. We're talking about the Holy Spirit filling us, influencing us, directing us. The Spirit's not the only one who can fill you, influence you, direct you. You can read in Luke chapter 22 about a man named Judas. And the Bible says that Satan entered him to the end that he would betray Jesus. It's influence. You can read in Acts chapter 5 about a man named Ananias who went to church. And he lied about some money that he had made. Peter's diagnosis is Ananias. Satan has filled, same word, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to God. You understand, Judas and Ananias did not wake up one day and say, I would like to invite Satan into my heart. That was not the conscious decision that they made. But it was a persistent hardness of heart, an unwillingness to listen to the truth, an unwillingness to turn from sin, rebellion, unrepentant rebellion against God, and it resulted in someone else influencing them to a terrible end. We're not talking about crazy Hollywood stuff, crazy exorcism and things that you see in movies and TVs. That's not what we're talking about. We're simply saying you need to be careful who influences your heart. Because if it's not the Holy Spirit, there is a devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. One last truth about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers God's people to talk about Jesus. And we'll have more to say about this in the next couple of weeks, so we'll be brief here. But notice that in verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And this fits with what we know about the Holy Spirit. It fits with the Holy Spirit inspiring the Scriptures. It's the Spirit of truth. He inspires a true word about God and a true word about us and a true word about salvation. We have that in the Bible. He's the one who points us to Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. We'll talk about that next week. It's the Spirit's job to point you to the truth of the glory of Jesus Christ. There's an Old Testament prophet named Micah who said that he had the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. That he could expose the sin of God's people and call them to repentance. It's the Spirit of truth. The book of Acts, you look up these references on your own. Six times in the book of Acts, you'll read about people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Seriously, look them up. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The emphasis when they're filled with the Holy Spirit is not that crazy, miraculous, out-of-control things happened. That's not the emphasis. You look them up. When they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they talk about Jesus. They proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why the connection in the book of Acts between being filled with the Holy Spirit and sharing the good news of the gospel is because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the Spirit of truth who empowers God's people to talk about Jesus. Look, being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? 
Don't navel gaze. Don't think about your emotions. Don't think about what you feel. Don't look for miraculous, ecstatic, out-of-control manifestations. You look to the Word of God and you say, Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Do I believe the truth about Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Is my life marked by obedience to Jesus? Not perfectly, it's not. But is the orientation of my life that of a disciple, somebody who's following Jesus? And am I that kind of person that will talk about Jesus? Those are the marks, those are the tests in John 14.